like to do the unrest is best thing anymore if we can help it. So yeah, we don't have to do start that. it however okay. you want. Yeah. It's a new era. The orange the orange menace is defeated. <laughs> Fascism has been destroyed. We don't have to talk about unrest is best. Unrest is bad now. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, tripping up Biden's agenda. Uh, Biden will be able to pass the most progressive agenda in history if only there's no uprest. Unrest. They're the people's police now. <laughs> Popular militias on the streets for Joe Biden. <laughs> um, so we will be talking about the election and this uh, attempted coup later mm. and why Sean and I are skeptical that there will be a coup. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but first, we're going to talk about uh, Society of the Spectacle. We're going to do one of our spine check series spine of check. bending the spines of some of our favorite works <laughs> of Marxist literature. And Ooh. with us uh, for that, we have Eric John <laughs> Russell, who is the author of a forthcoming book, Spectacular Logic in Hegel and Debord. And he is the editor of Cured Quail. So, Eric John, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks a lot. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, chat with you guys. Really. Just, just a little background. I think you and I have known each other for well over a decade now. Easily, easily. Uh, you, you go by your given name now, Eric John Russell. It's going to be very difficult for me to not call you by other names. But... Yeah, no, no, no. There's a few. It depends on the context. As Wu always. Ming. <laughs> for people, uh, so if I bust into John David or whatever, um, I apologize to the listeners for that. He's a man of many names. But when I first met you, and this will date it, I uh, put your name into my flip phone. I just put yeah. you in as John David Madman. <laughs> That's good. Wow. What an impression I must have left. <laughs> a great one, man. A great one. And I know you from high school. I would see your punk band play when I was in high school. Oh, my God. That's right jesus you have um you have that really great story too i can you tell the haymarket book story uh when i was doing like engineering work in new york city yeah yeah if you if you you want to oh i know what you mean i know what you mean uh so i got this job as with an engineering firm and what they would do is hire people without engineering degrees right just to save a little bit money on the uh on the wages there and so I would show up, but the, basically the job would consist you going to a construction site, you setting up a seismograph, and you just sit there um, and watch it, and then you just shut it off at the end of the day. And over time, that habit just became excruciatingly boring, mm-hmm. right? And there was no immediate boss or overseer, right? It was just a sort of private uh, engineering firm that was contracted to the construction company. So after some time, I just wouldn't go to the construction <laughs> site, right? I would just sort of sit in my apartment, turn the machine on, sure, sure. And, and let it go for eight, nine hours, and then just, you know, send the data in, and everything was uh, peachy keen. Uh, yeah, abolish work, folks. We're going to talk about yeah, that later. Just to clarify, that was John David and not Eric John. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you walk around New York City in like a hard hat and an orange vest, right, you sort of, uh, you have a different experience of the city. That ass, yes. So at the time, right, when I was just like walking around the construction site, you know, I'd go to these like, you know, bookstores and things like this. And there was Mayday Books down there on the Lower East Side. R.I.P. It would be hilarious to walk in, you know, you're perusing the collection there and uh, the employees would just be like flabbergasted, you know, that an actual <laughs> authentic proletariat would walk into the shop and the workers are here, in an, you know, in an Emma Goldman biography or something like this. <laughs> and it was uh, it was great. You know, you, you'd, you'd be able to use any sort of vendor bathroom. 
you know, with this hard hat and this orange vest on. It was fantastic. Wow. You got to live on the other side for a little bit, man. We're not going to go talk too much about hard hat, her hard hat um, privilege on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Maybe on another episode, we'll talk about that in greater depth. Um, But yeah, uh, cured quail. You've moved on from uh, fake seismography now to uh, (laughs) other ventures, including other fake uh, ventures. Um, including uh, Cured Quail, which is a journal that you help uh, produce uh, and also uh, author from. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about this project. Yeah, I mean, so it's a it's a journal of critical theory. Uh, We've got no sort of institutional backing or support. It's just sort of friends writing things that we think should be written about in the present moment. Uh, we've got um, one issue that came out in 2018, um, which was a lot of fun to do. Uh, and we got another issue coming out. Um, it's basically ready now, but what we uh, are running is a fundraiser currently to try to get enough people to purchase pre-orders, right? So we can pay the printer because God knows we don't have any money. Um, but just to say a little bit more about what the journal's about, right? Um, it's a journal of critical theory, right? So what, what we mean by that really is the critique of society. Echo, yes. echo, echo. <laughs> um, and what that means is uh, it's a perspective that takes seriously bringing together kind of, you know, different discourses, not just um, the critique of political economy, although that does play a large role, but also, you know, cultural critique, uh, sociology, value form, psychoanalysis, you know, so it brings together a few different kinds of discourses of course, you know, related to the topic today, it also, the journal takes a strong cue from writings and activities of the situationists. Uh, it's got that sort of infamous provocative and bombastic tone that they're so famous for. That madman shit that we were referring to. Exactly. But basically the journal's kind of prompt is that, okay, since the seventies, right, we've seen, you know, what different people refer to as like a fragmentation or a, maybe an individualization of the working class, right? And so since that time, it's we think it's worth asking a sort of series of questions in light of those developments, in light of where we are in the present moment. So this is like, you know, how damaged have we become? Uh, and especially in the realm of like everyday life. Um, you know, what is currently preventing working class cohesion, we could ask? Um, how do changing forms of subjectivity play a role in all this? Um, but then a big part of it is also, you know, what about culture itself? You know, what uh, what stands in the way of us taking culture more seriously or more critically? Um, how does industrial culture, we might say, um, evade responsibilities for its lies? Uh, or even something simple as taste, you know, like taste seems like a very sort of philosophical or aesthetic question, but you know, we wonder with the journal and with the articles and the essays, you know, whether or not taste might be a worthwhile register um, for tracking capitalist domination. Mm. So it's questions like these that the essays and the journal itself tries to sort of tangle with. And often the essays themselves are in conversation with one another, especially volume two, which we're trying to get printed right now. And, um, yeah, there's just uh, a lot of different people contributing some really great writing on that. In um, in volume one, we had uh, Paul Maddock actually write about the DeBoard Society, the spectacle. Uh, in that volume, I have a kind of response to him. Um, there's this wonderful play that was written for volume one by Veronica Zyshenko. Um, 
And then we have a whole new set of really uh, fantastic essays for volume two that we're trying to print here, which is um, basically trying to track, you know, what we can call maybe our cultural impoverishment uh, alongside some kind of corresponding psychological injuries mm. that we've incurred in the last years. Well, I'm looking um, so at we got some of the yeah some of the names here. There's art uh, and social reality historical origins of aesthetic abstraction by Ross Wolf. Hey, yeah, of the, the show. show. Um, yeah, he's got that's a good essay. Um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's art, there's uh, uh, philosophy, there's proper critique and polemic. Uh, there's also a lot of psychoanalysis, especially in some of the last few essays. We have two essays by Anselm Yapa there oh, wow. from the uh, sort of um, Welt critique sort of tradition of value form critique in Germany. He's got um, two really fantastic essays in it. Uh, one about sort of the state of ch- children today. How are they deprived of their own childhood? Uh, and then there's another one where he traces, this is a bit academic, but he traces the history of interpreting Freud in the Frankfurt school, Ooh. which is, just a monumental task, but he really summarizes this whole debate over the decades really, really well. Um, so you can see it's like really uh, all over the place, um, but they are in sort of conversation with one another from, you know, different vantage points. And we're just really excited to get this thing out into the world. I, so we encourage the listeners to uh, pre-order Cured Quail Volume 2, which, you know, helps print it. And uh, that's... <laughs> That's part of why we had you on the show is because we want to see this journal. Um, why don't you let people know how they can do that? I mean, they can easily just go to curedquail.com. The, um, you can purchase it directly there or, you know, set your pre-order. We also have uh, Facebook and Twitter pages that helps also direct you to the, um, you know, the page where you make the pre-order. But it's basically if you go to curedquail.com, you'll find your way. It's pretty self-explanatory. And I noticed that you, the mascot of curedquail.com is a cat whose body appears to be the uh, the ancient uh, Hebraic fort of Masada. Is that correct? It is. It absolutely is. Normal. <laughs> Very normal. Yeah. What's up with that? Uh, it's a, it's a really long story. Um, <laughs> All right, rest it, of the it, podcast. It would, Let's do it. It would take a separate, <laughs> a separate, long, elaborate anecdote to fill in all the details. On One of that. the many <laughs> mysteries of cured quail. That there you, are uh, there are layers. Enjoy are layers. unraveling for yourself. We uh, strongly <laughs> encourage people to go and pre-order that, and of course, we'll put the link to where you can do that in the show description. Stellar. And so now we're, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about society spectacle at length uh, because you are an expert and we are both fans. So yeah. I'm excited about that discussion. And what we're going to do uh, for the listeners, we're going to have uh, a portion of that in this main episode. And then the rest of it will be on Friday as a bonus. So um, let's start can I, out. Can I, can I oh, start yeah, with telling a society of the spectacle story, my own journey of society of the spectacle? Ooh, ooh. Do it. Mm-hmm. Andy, Andy gave me the thumbs up for that. <laughs> yeah. He gave me the cool guy finger pointing thing for that. <laughs> Which punk band was it? <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't actually a punk band. I remember at the shitty community college I was going to in 1999, I would sign on to the internet and use it there. And there was a website called Disinfo. I don't know if people have heard of that before. So like in the course of reading that, I heard about the Society of the Spectacle and I heard about Guy Debord. I had no knowledge whatsoever of Marx. I had no knowledge of Hegel. Uh, Mm -hmm. All I saw was 
aesthetically because of course Guy Debord's life itself was very interesting you know that mm-hmm. not only never worked but he also practically drank himself to the death and shot himself in the heart and I thought that was really fucking cool when I was a kid and then Society of the Spectacle uh, was portrayed to me as a young person as this kind of badass subversive literature that was tied to a real badass subversive event, which was May 68, in which there was an insurrection and a general strike, and it seemed as though the French state might be overthrown. And if you looked at the pictures of it, it was a bunch of mods in the streets, like picking up stones and throwing them at cops. It all just seemed very, very cool in an aesthetic way. But then, unfortunately, when I picked up Society of the Spectacle, because I had absolutely no background in this stuff at all, it read interesting, like the aphorisms were great, and I tried to like glean some sort of knowledge out of it, but it was extremely, it, it read like gibberish, essentially, because without yeah. a decent background in it, there's no way that you can understand the text as it was supposed to be written, which is a, a critique of political economy, a critique of uh, reification, and a critique of uh, alienation during mm-hmm. a certain phase of capitalist development. So you need the kind of background, not just the jargon, but of course the kind of theoretical heft in order to actually understand. And I didn't have that when I was 19. Yeah. I mean, I had definitely a similar experience where it was, you know, first, like Andy says, uh, you know, like bands like Propaganda or The Refused mm. in which, uh, you know, situationist ideas were first introduced to me. Right. And, and actually it was then something like May 68, which I started to learn more about. Right. And it was because the the graffiti of may 68 right you didn't yep. have to necessarily have a knowledge of marxism to sort of just be on board with the idea of never working right yeah, as, sur la like a, la plage yes exactly under the you know there's a beach under there if we only <laughs> were to rip up those streets let's rip them all and up and make a beach that's it and so it was really really similar trajectory as sean describes for me as well where it was like okay I picked up Society of the Spectacle, right? Okay, this seems pretty fun, but um, also, you know, quite difficult to manage. And then what it was, was um, Raoul Vanagheim's Revolution yes. of Everyday Life, which uh, was much sort of, at least for me at the time, easier to grasp, easier to navigate, um, easier to appreciate, right? Because it, there is a sort of stronger literary quality of that book, even though they're written, you know, the exact same time. And this was really before I read Marx, before I read Hegel. So um, it was only later then, right, after I had done those, you know, sort of larger thinkers that I went back to Society of the Spectacle and was like, oh, wow, this has actually some important things to say, some important diagnostics to sort of set upon this society. And having reread it for this uh, episode, it is an incredibly rich text. Like it sets itself up as a series of theses. And I swear, like, you know, I could write a book on each one of those theses with how much actual content it is is in there and how many interesting things to think about. So, yeah, I mean, I've spent uh, I've done numerous trips to the Guy Debord archive in Paris at the National Library there. And in the archive, um, you know, there are his reading notes on everything he read. Right. Mm. And it's just remarkable how well read the guy was, you know, I mean, if to the sort of um, discerning eye, you know, reading Society of the Spectacle, you see that there is so much different discursive influence there, you know, not just Marx, not just Hegel, but we also have, you know, Thucydides, we have uh, Shakespeare, uh, we have psychoanalysis, you know, just all different kinds of um, references that went into this, making it, you know, what you rightly describe as an incredibly rich text. And then on top of that, too, you have the political content, which we're going to talk a a lot about later. 
uh, mm. Guy Debord and the Situationist International kind of keeping alive this councilism, you know, that had uh, persisted into the post-war era, but was kind of like uh, overcome by Trotskyism and, and state, uh, state uh, capitalist ideology. Hey, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of interesting sort of uh, works kind of examining, you know, how the situationist idea of councilism differs from what came before, you know, what the significance of councilism was at a time in France when to be a communist just meant to be a Stalinist. Right. Um, yeah, it's really a fascinating story, that period of France, really. Uh, so why don't we start talking about the the book itself uh, with the context of, of writing it. What was the Situationist International and um, what was DeBoer doing with Side the Spectacle? Well, I mean, um, you know, there's a prehistory to the book itself and that prehistory consists of um, the group, the Situationist International, which was a, um, a group that came out of um, some of the early avant-garde movements in Europe. So Dada, Surrealism, um, Lettrism after that. And uh, they started as a group, of course, breaking from another group. And um, the idea here was uh, a, a strong critique of the idea uh, of a division of labor uh, within something like artistic experience. So the idea here is that um, art should not right, be separated from one's everyday life. In fact, we should be living our lives like works of art. And so any sort of artists that take refuge in their own specialization, um, they are just sort of reaffirming the division of labor that is ubiquitous throughout capitalist society itself. So the SI sort of begin their critique from that perspective, begin from the idea that um, art and life should have some kind of synthesis to it. Um, And so, you know, some of them at the time, uh, members of the SI are artists. But then slowly, uh, their writings and their critiques, um, you know, of not just of uh, art, but also of society, it starts to be, uh, integrate sort of more Marxism into it. It starts to sort of integrate itself into uh, more of the political situation um, in France at the time and, and globally also. Uh, and then sort of at that point, I'm talking about the early 60s then, um, there, there is a famous sort of split within the uh, situationists between, um, you know, those who want to take forward the critique in a more political direction and those who just want to make, you know, um, luscious careers as artists. Mm. Um, and one other thing I was going to say, but I'm forgetting it now. Um, You're doing great so far, by the way. This is really good content. And there was one other important detail here about context, um, the letters, the split of the situation is the split. I mean, the important thing, real, and I think this is part of their fundamental sort of um, contribution to critique, right, is that the Situations International, they were not simply concerned uh, with uh, a critique of capitalism that rested on the idea of immiseration. Maybe we can say it this way. Um, the sort of concern of the SI was that even when capitalism is producing, um, you know, uh, unprecedented abundance with uh, higher standards of living, with, um, you know, greater purchasing power from the proletariat, uh, this is precisely the sort of um, 
capacity of capitalism that is, um, you know, warranted of, of the most sort of, uh, you know, vicious critique as, you know, as possible. Um, so the idea here that even when um, capitalism is capable of satisfying our needs, um, this is when critique should have its greatest ambition we can say, right? Even when we are finding forms of satisfaction in, you know, a good life, you know, with low levels of unemployment, you know, high technological development, low levels of inflation, um, you know, this is when we need to really um, sort of set our sights on um, the sort of kind of, we can even say spiritual poverty that's involved in a situation like that. Um, and I think that's part of the, you know, what's strong about their, um, their legacy, right. But also the significance, uh, of their, uh, political intervention this way. Yeah. I, what I really like about them and why I think they're very significant is that they, they they sort of made that transition from like a politicized art world to becoming like a, a militant political group in the late, 50s when uh, you know France was uh, uh, at war with Algeria, so there was that this decolonial struggle, and then in the 1960 yeah. there was this general strike in Brussels that the sort of like foreshadowed what would happen uh, in the, that began in Paris in May 68, and right. uh, they watched the the trade unions betray it, and the Communist Party betray it, so they they sort of staked out this position throughout the 60s where they were um, a, a communist group that was really intent on a, a Marxist critique. That really had to do with what was essential about capitalism and class struggle and not these conceptions of it being, you know, capitalist states versus workers states um, yeah. or, you know, bringing the, the workers to power through trade unions and, and through big communist parties. They had a, a more uh, molecular and insurrectionary approach that yeah. became very relevant um, in, in the, uh, the end of the 60s and early 70s. And also, too, you know, the... 50s and 60s were the high point of what we can call worldview Marxism. You know, mm. campism is 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 uh, part of what Andy talked about, but also um, Marxist theory and analysis as this sort of mecha- mechanistic, sort of like determined um, method and, and philosophy, uh, which you just read the correct text and then the the party will interpret for you and blah blah blah. But um, what Society of the Spectacle does really, really well is to, uh, look again at capitalist society as a totality and the experience yeah. of everyday life under capitalism as being an essential part of that totality and the necessity to understand how it is that our own experiences, that our collective experiences are a reflection of that poverty, the poverty of everyday life and also yeah. the poverty of um, like psychologically, you know, under capitalism. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, um, an important figure around the, de- the theoretical development of the SI was uh, Henry Lefebvre. Um, and what's interesting about his, his works, right, is that we have this idea, you know, he was studying the 1844 manuscripts. And so the idea of alienation, right, was extremely important for philosophy at the time, but also Marxism in France, um, you know, for a period as these writings of Marx were becoming more available. And uh, Lefebvre's point, right, is that, you know, when we're looking at capitalist alienation, we should not simply be focusing uh, on the actual literal production process, right, uh, uh, as alienation that takes place just when we're at work. 
rather, we should be looking at sort of the alienation, like Sean says, you know, that pervades everyday life. So this means the alienation um, that we might experience with our leisure time, the alienation we might experience moving throughout the city, you know, geographical space, um, the alienation we might experience when we um, are contending with the uh, kind of forms of temporality and time that this society opposes uh, upon us there. Um, So it's really um, this idea that the SI developed theoretically is this notion that alienation, right, is a kind of polyscopic condition of this society in all of its aspects. And it's not as if, you know, when we end the working day, we're no longer alienated. No, it's uh, it's constitutive of the society itself in its totality, right, in all of its aspects. And one other point I want to make before we get into the text itself is that uh, as a result of that kind of outlook on, you know, the, the revolution of everyday life and, and living life uh, in, in a certain way, they have become uh, equated as a countercultural movement, mm-hmm. even yeah. often thought of as like a group of psychedelic hippies, uh, <laughs> which I guess they kind of were in the United States. Uh, if, but, if it was psychedelic wine <laughs> they were drinking, then. <laughs> and, I, you know, maybe some of their uh, student followers <laughs> kind of betrayed that uh, sort of lifestyle as well. But uh, this mm. is uh, not entirely a book about or, or this is not a, a movement about how to just simply live communally or or, uh, or drop you know out. yeah it's, it's not about you know, living a life in a non-capitalistic way or something like that mm-hmm. although that cool. is an element of it um and i think this is why society the spectacle is so important this is like sort of the the more insurrectionary manifesto or uh you know it, it develops their political economy in a way that really doesn't have much to do with like what you do with your free time or the no, of no. Time. I mean, in fact, the unity of work time and free time was part of the uh, you know fundamental critique of the society, the spectacle. That unity between those two realms of everyday life. Um, I mean, the important important thing, right, is um, the book itself. I find to be very minimally prescriptive at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are some sort of comments here and there, but mostly it's a book of diagnostics, right? It's a book that sort of diagnostically attempts to assess, you know, what the current form of capitalism has taken throughout the 20th century and in particular in the post-war period. Um, And it's, it's sort of, you know, critically outlining those conditions rather than suggesting here's the answer. No, it it fundamentally, and this is backed up in DeBoard's letters, it, it fundamentally just, tries to describe the situation we're living rather than take any kind of, um, you know, forthright prescriptive stance or something like this. Mm. Um, well, I read some of that into it, yeah. but uh, we'll, we'll get to that like later on in my part. I think there, there is some of that uh, methodology um, yeah. implied at least. Well, I, I think that if I, if I can read a thesis here, thesis ooh, uh, ooh. 120 here, revolution. Hold on, I got I have my copy. Hold on. Okay. 120. <laughs> 120. What's the best translation, my, by the way? I have my six copies here. Okay. <laughs> Should have borrowed one, man. Can you airmail one from uh, Germany next time? I um, could. What, what language do you want? I have my <laughs> What do you got? Um, all right. Thesis 120. Revolutionary organization is the coherent expression of the theory of praxis entering into two-way communication with practical struggles in the process of becoming practical theory. 
Its own practice is to foster the communication and coherence of these struggles. At the revolutionary moment, when social separations are dissolved, the organization must dissolve itself as a separate organization. Right. So this idea of the of of the of the revolutionary truth arising out of struggles themselves is very different from, say, the PCF, uh, where it was a, a top down sort of. Um, yeah. Uh, process of communication between the streets and uh, the Revolutionary Party. Yeah, and I think this is uh, something that r- really derives um, from Debord's relationship to uh, socialism or barbarism. You know, this group in France at the time, I mean, they were one of the few communist groups that started criticizing the USSR in like the late 40s. Um, most groups started criticizing the USSR only after uh, Hungary in 56. Um, but socialism or barbarism was one of the few who started, and it's one of the few organizations also that the board participated in other than his own. And, um, you know, this was a left communist council communist group really that would in this way, um, you know, participate in struggles, you know, and derive its theoretical coherence, like Sean says, from the struggles themselves. But um, even there, DeBoard ended up um, sort of refining a critique of that organization insofar as he witnessed um, the organization itself um, becoming sort of excessively self-referential, right? So the purpose would be end up being to maintain the organization and that organization then would have its own internal division of labor um, between, you know, theoreticians like, um, you know, Lafort and Castoriadis and then younger sort of militants that would sort of, you know, follow in whatever the older theoreticians would say. So this idea of an organization needing to dissolve, um, you know, depending on the way in which class struggle itself was developing, I think is a sort of direct lesson that DeBoard not just takes from these state communist parties, but even, um, you know, from some of the more radical ones like socialism or barbarism. Yeah, maybe I can, I'll jump into my section now because this is, it follows from what you're saying. Uh, so uh, around the, the part where Sean's reading is this, uh, this section about revolutionary history where mm. uh, DeBoard has a critique of both uh, this, you know, worldview or orthodox Marxism, uh, social democracy, and also anarchism. I'll read something from section 88, um, where he says, quote, the growth of the forces of production cannot in itself guarantee this accession to power, you know, proletarian revolution, not even indirectly via the increase in dispossession that this growth entails. So, you know, just because the proletariat becomes immiserated doesn't mean they're going to seize power either. The proletariat cannot make use of any ideology designed to pass partial goals off as general ones because it cannot maintain any partial reality that is truly its own. He explains more why this is so important uh, to the revolutionary project. He argues, Mm. quote, the proletariat will never come to embody power unless it becomes the class of consciousness. And then Mm. he continues in 89, the proletarian class is formed into a subject in its process of organizing revolutionary struggles and in its reorganization of society at the moment of revolution. This is where the practical conditions of consciousness must exist, conditions in which the theory of praxis is confirmed by becoming practical theory. Uh, So this is kind of my biggest, maybe prescriptive takeaway from the Mm. book, which is that it's it's fine for you to like think about anarchism or Leninism, the vanguard and all this stuff. uh, But 
really you're just thinking about history. If it's not practical, if it's if if you're not able to put it into practice, or it doesn't relate to the kind of of conflictual gestures that currently exist, it's kind of just dead weight. You think I have that more or less right? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's important to put that that chapter right, which I think is the longest chapter in the book, uh, in a little bit of context. Right, we're talking. He's talking. He's already introduced the idea of the spectacle there, you know, in the first couple of chapters, and what he's giving here, right, is a kind of history of um, history of the workers' movement, history of revolutionary struggle, um, history of uh, workers' organizations, and the way in which the chapter proceeds, right, is that we have increasingly a critique of the spectacle, which is a critique of appearances. It's a critique of images. It's also a critique of representation. And so it's important, I think, for DeBoard in these sections to sort of establish how it is that the image of the working class, and I think I'm paraphrasing here, uh, the image of the working class via its organizations has become an enemy of the working class, um, precisely through that, um, you know, spectacular structure. Uh, And so I think that's the that's the trajectory of doing this kind of history there. Um, but, uh, you know, still with an eye towards uh, proletarian self-determination, right? Proletarian self-determination. That was Eric John Russell uh, talking about Society of the Spectacle. And uh, like I said, on, on Friday, you'll have the full episode available to our patrons. Please become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada, and now we'll be talking about the elections, the elections. and the chaos and, and the, chaos. the uh, slow-moving coup that you know may or may not install Trump as our God Emperor mm-hmm. um, in a matter of weeks. We'll we'll find out. The listeners come to the Antifada for our hard-hitting elect- uh, election analysis. So we have spent so many months constantly talking in minute details about the policy differences between Biden and Trump. And now that this election has happened, I think it's uh, contingent upon us to talk a little bit about the short to medium term, what we're going to see here. Yeah, and I wanted to begin doing that with another quote from Society of the Spectacle. <laughs> Once the running of a state involves a permanent and massive shortage of historical knowledge, the state can no longer be led strategically. And likewise, when we're talking about what's going on with Trump and his attempted coup, we have to talk about it uh, with a, a degree of historical knowledge and not frame it so simply as something like fascism versus democracy. Yeah. So we all we all smashed our Cheeto bags up the other day. We're past that now. <laughs> yeah, there was literally ritual uh, smashing of Cheetos in the streets of Prospect Heights, uh, Brooklyn, <laughs> which uh, we. We actually we tried to get the Cheetos. They were sold out everywhere. That's incredible. We sent you guys out for Cheetos, <laughs> and there's just none to buy, none more to smash. Well, I think like, they looted and burnt down the Frito-Lay <laughs> distribution center. I can't believe we ended up in Prospect Park for the Biden celebration. Like We had already had plans just to go to the parks. So yeah. It was going to be a gorgeous day. And then uh, right before we left, the election was called for Biden, and then we ended up driving over with Matt and Amber. And then before you knew it, we were in like a lit dance party with a bunch of white herbs. It reminded me of uh, I was in Morocco once, and there was this this uh, soccer game 
that people were like preparing for all week. Everyone was excited about this soccer game. It was like Marrakesh versus some other city. Sure. And then, uh, you know, the, the night came and they, Marrakesh won and everybody was celebrating in the streets. People honking their horns all night, lighting off fireworks, all night party. And the next morning, I, I talked to somebody in a cafe and I said, oh, big game last night, right? He's like, oh, no, this is like a really small preliminary game for this other tournament. Yeah. And there's pretty much no chance that that other city would beat us. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an excuse. It was an excuse to get out. And uh, people need excuses now under the COVID regime. That's right. So we, we were in the midst of it. We were in the center of the storm. The day of amnesty. Right. Um, but... So I think part of why people were so excited is because there was an expectation that there would be a lot of chaos. And of course, you know, as, as time has gone on, there is the chaos is developing uh, within the Trump administration refusing to concede. Um, but it's not the, uh, the racial civil war that some had yeah. imagined. But I wanted to start off the section by talking about why people might have thought that that was coming. Mm. A lot of people were talking about that on social media mm-hmm. and in the news about this kind of impending fascist coup that's coming. And, you know, not without uh, any reason. So I, I listed a few of the reasons why people believe this was coming. I think most importantly would be the unchecked growth of the executive branch. Right. Trump really had this autocratic style. Bill Barr backed that up uh, with his idea of, you know, the president being above the law. So there's a sense that if the, if the president... Uh, doesn't like the election, perhaps he can just circumvent it. And in fact, so, something a lot of us have found out for the first time is that you can. <laughs> you can actually just demand that the state legislatures choose their own electors yeah. and throw out the, the the actual votes. I love how over the last four years we've discovered the nuts and bolts of democracy. Like so much for so many years was simply like norms and customs right. of respecting, but now it's like actually... When Even voting it, is just a norm and custom <laughs> right? that one day a, uh, a president or a party could decide is no longer relevant. Yeah, and not relevant. Basically what's going on now is that Trump is floating that question of dictatorship. He's saying almost blatantly, because they're just like making up their legal case day by day. But he's saying, let's just openly, like, just elect your own legislatures and give me the electoral votes, throw out the election. Uh, And instead of, you know, the Republicans saying, oh, my God, no, that's horrible, sir. They're like, they're like, oh, yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe, well, you know, let's give it some time. Let's, let's think throw about it. Out it. There, see what so it's an there. open question, and it appears it's not going to happen. We'll get into that. Um, Trump has a massive security apparatus through the DHS, DOJ. So this is pretty notable because he can, you know, send something like troops, his own police force anywhere to repress any kind of uprising against a, a coup attempt. As we've seen. Um, he's packed the courts with, you know, hundreds of insane like a uh, right-wing catholics Just and evangelicals fundamental and what party is party partisans yeah. when it comes down to it including the supreme court federalist society goons who have been waiting in the wings for 20 30 years in order to bring this retrograde interpretation mm-hmm. of the law and so if they were to rule on something like for example the integrity of the u.s elections they could absolutely rule that the u.s elections are not legitimate because Something Trump has done, but you know, is a process that began before him, was this uh, defunding of the election apparatus. You know, the the public aspects of it are in shambles, and a lot of it is privatized in ways that are legitimately scary. So mm-hmm. now you have 
Republicans starting to talk about uh, the, these uh, software companies and, and, and voting machine companies. And isn't it strange that they, they have software errors and are connected to the internet and stuff? It's like, yeah, people have been saying this for quite a while. Greg Palace um, back in 2004, right? The Diebold machines in Ohio. I remember that. Yeah. And in 2000, you know, there, there are a lot of strange things about the Florida election that kind of just should have been talked about at the time, but just they let it go. So uh, Trump also has powerful forces in his corner. He's got a, uh, a sizable right-wing media that's very adept at putting out propaganda. There are several world leaders that support him, like uh, you know Modi in India, Bolsonaro. And there's a lot of billionaires that support him, Sheldon Adelson, the Mercers. Um, so a lot of people were, would be willing to back him up with money and international legitimacy. And he's got, of course, a huge and militant right-wing of millions of cultish followers uh, 70 million voted for him. We can only guess about how many of those people are really willing to fight for him, but many of them are armed. They're in militias. They're in these, you know, like fascistic groups like the Proud Boys. And so he, they, could, have, uh, they could send, you know, their people to the streets. Yeah, I was going to say, even recently, you know, with the, the counter protests to the BLM, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and insurrections that we saw, you already had those people out in the street proposing themselves as a force to, to uh, maintain law and order. And a final reason I've got written down is that the state in general, often liberal uh, politicians specifically, have repressed, ignored, or denied the militant aspects of the left, whether it be Antifa or BLM, have you know scapegoated rioters, radicals. People who are willing to take the streets and to fight have been basically, yeah, uh, villainized. Um, by the Democratic Party, right. uh, you know, along with labor, which is decreasingly of interest to the Democratic Party. And fully um, demobilized at this point. Yeah, just demobilizing and attacking the people that you were going to need in the, in the situation of a coup. But there's a lot of reasons why these things don't add up to God Emperor Trump. Mm. I'd say probably the first and foremost reason is that Trump is a bad manager and his administration is in shambles. Yes. So even if he were to make his best attempt pulling this off. He just didn't set it up correctly. He, uh, he wasn't giving his propagandists a lot to work with, you know, like just the fact that he telegraphed that he was going to do this for so long yeah. really takes away from the credulity of his case that something strange happened on election night. That was basically what everybody expected to happen. And the question is now, are you going along with his pantomime or not? Right. Uh, on top of that, the people who he's put in charge of, of these like recounts and court cases um, are uh, all have COVID uh, <laughs> and you got to figure that, that their, their capabilities are diminished in some way. So he has uh, Bill Barr at DOJ and all these DHS ghouls are in his corner, like I mentioned, but they also not in, in Trump's corner are the FBI, mm. CIA and the military. He, he called on these troops to suppress um, his political enemies, uh, rival politicians, um, Antifa and BLM, um, you know, sending troops out to demonstrations. And uh, a lot of these agencies resented the poli that political use of it. So he, uh, he doesn't have a lot of friends in those groups either, which is why DHS and DOG, DOJ became this kind of militarized police force. Right. Um, so uh, in court cases so far, like leading up to the election and since, uh, even extremely right-wing judges have not uh, looked favorably on these attempts to throw out 
votes, uh, legitimate votes. He, right. They're just not getting a lot of victories. Isn't um, the, it's, it's about the mail-in process, right? Is their big, um, right. their big push? Is yeah, that. that and just like other forms of voting in democratic areas that were probably designed, like the drive-through voting in, right. in uh, I think in Houston, um, the, they wanted to throw out those votes and the, the judge is like, I'd like to, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if I had my way, it's a little bit. Yeah. I, there, you gotta give me something better than just throwing out the votes. There, there's still some fidelity to the rule of law, even amongst these like federalist society, right wing ghoul judges. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, like I, this is all leading to, I think it would happen. They, they would side with Trump at a different kind of political moment. Okay. Um, now of course it, when, when and if this makes its way to the Supreme Court, what they will do is unknown. They could, you know, pull a Bush versus Gore and just have a ruling that's totally illegitimate, um, but install chooses the next president. Three of the people on the court were part of Bush's team mm. uh, or, or part of uh, they were, you know, part of the conservative wing of the court um, during a. Or, you know, Bushy, forgot, Bushy were, were they Gore? working for Bush, the, the Bush team, or were they working for the judges? I the believe justices? Kavanaugh was part of like the the Brooks Brothers riot, the right wing okay. judicial team that helped under Jim Baker. I think that that helped to help Bush to win in, in two thousand. Yeah. So these characters were there, so they don't actually give a shit about no. the, like the legitimacy of the election. They give us they give a shit about the propriety though, and the of um of the judicial system. Like I don't think that they're so based that they want to just make up rulings you know i think they want it to somehow be connected to some plausible like constitutional theory yeah and i mean the, that's what they that, that is what they they make up rulings that have like an air of plausibility sometimes i don't put it past them to be able to just say uh oh election election didn't happen trump wins um and use some ridiculous justification uh but i don't think they would do that because i think they're playing a longer game mm. um which is first of all the court is already seen as illegitimate by a lot of Americans by the, the nature that they refuse to seat Obama's judges. Um, and that's now a six to three majority them ruling against Trump would be a huge boost of legitimacy for them and for the U S electoral process. So the fact that the judiciary is totally partisan and activist for the rights and the fact that our election system does not work and is falling apart <laughs> and is led by these sketchy companies will all be, you know, that, that'll all be swept under the rug if Biden becomes the next president. Right. And we can just say like, Oh, you think example. that the, yeah. yeah, you think the voting machines are changing the votes? No, no, that's what Trump said. You know, yeah. you're like, you're like a Trump person now. And of course, you know, liberals did say this stuff in 2016. There was this, this recount. Um, and I think the the uh, Supreme Court, what their rulings have pointed to, is that they're playing a long game that sides with rep- state legislatures over uh, over uh, Supre- uh, over judges. Um, def- so deferring to state legislatures uh, will give the uh, election to Biden because state legislatures, by and large, made these rules. Um, however, it also gives un like a huge amount of power to the Republicans because the Republicans are very good at gerrymandering state legislatures, which in turn suppress votes. So Mm. it'll be a, you know, a long-term power grab for the Republicans if they side against uh, Trump. Yeah, because they made um, the the blue wave that was supposed to come and and sweep up state legislatures and the Congress and the Senate um, 
with Biden at the helm did not happen. And so we're now going into a census year where the districts are going to be reformed again by these state legislatures. And by and large, they're controlled by Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, Trump has uh, you know, lost the immediate support of a lot of right populists around the world, like Boris Johnson, uh, uh, Shinzo Abe, who's no longer the PM in Japan, but he kind of fell out with Trump. And even now, even Bolsonaro now is, is signaling that he's moving away from Trump to some degree. He's made deep enemies in the EU and in, uh, in China. Um, Israel and Saudi Arabia, obviously, they like Trump a lot, but, you know, he's not crucial. You know, Biden doesn't really pose as much, <laughs> much of a, a threat to them. Um, and the capitalist class in general, uh, you know, they've become very rich under Trump. They appreciate his cronyism um, and his uh, kind of authoritarian uh, neoliberal mm-hmm. style um, uh, and, you know, the deregulation and, uh, you know, ripping up a trade deal performatively and just putting it back in under a different name. Uh, but I don't think they see Biden as much of a loss to them no. either. Um, so I think this kind of solves some of the the questions of where right populism was going four years ago when, when there was winning all these elections with uh, Trump, Duterte, Bolsonaro, Salvini, Erdogan, etc. I think right populism was posing itself as a... Um, this is something that uh, Don Hammerchrist wrote about in the three-way fight blog. Uh, he called uh, right populism an offer of renewed, a renewed foundation of mass legitimacy and popular acquiescence in a time of deepening crisis, economic crisis, ecological crisis, political crisis. Um, and, uh, and capital needs some kind of uh, not only just a, a, a strong hand you know, against labor, crushing the workers or what have you, uh, but also people to believe in it to some degree. Um, so right populism seemed like a way to g- gain these pop, gain these populist energies, um, while putting, you know, strong men in favor, like basically doing neoliberalism, uh, without being so egalitarian, uh, and, uh, technocratic and liberal as the Democrats. Right. Uh, but I think as time has gone on, um, it's, it's become apparent that pop- populism, especially right populism, is a bit of a uh, liability um, for the international capitalist class. Egalitarianism is not uh, necessarily a challenge. You know, not, uh, not every capitalist is an ideological fascist. Um, and the, the bellicose rhetoric of Trump, the illiberalism of him, the uh, anti-intellectualism and anti-technocratic nature of his regime has, has made a lot of people who wanted to support him or open-minded to him disinterested. And among those is uh, Rupert Murdoch. Mm. Uh, so, so Murdoch, of course, is like a, a tight with Trump, uh, but Trump being a little bit too ideologically anti-immigrants, uh, Murdoch really didn't appreciate uh, because, you know, threatening to, for example, close the border entirely with Mexico, although Trump was never able to do it, that would, you know, cost millions or billions of dollars a day. Um, and, you know, trying to uh, make sure there, are, there, are, there isn't this big uh, uh, reserve army of exploitable immigrant labor or bringing over um, people f- uh, from India to do programming work, for H1 example. H-1B visas, yeah. Um, you know, Trump moving against these things uh, has you know, made the, uh, the uh, flexibility of the labor market uh, ha- has reined that in a little bit. Mm. Um, 
in a really incompetent way too. <laughs> so Murdoch, be, Murdoch is one example of like people who could be in Trump's corner, but in this case aren't, and they're not. You know, that's not for democratic reasons. Right. Um, and another uh, interesting article I found on this is from uh, CNN on uh, on November sixth. Um, it's talk. It's talking about this group of. Uh, influential people um, who met on election day. Uh, the members included U.S. Chamber CEO Thomas Donahue, AFL-CAO President Richard Trumka, um, National Association of Evangelicals President Walter Kim, and National African American Clergy Network co-convener Barbara Williams Skinner. And they met and basically said, we have to count every vote. Mm. Um, so this was basically sending a message like, a, a lot of powerful interests are not into this coup idea. And so finally, this leaves the question of the social forces on the street, the right and the left. Why aren't the Proud Boys uh, jumping in and, and seizing state power? Why aren't the three percenters uh, taking over voting counting centers in uh, Pennsylvania? Yeah. And this was a, a reasonable fear for there to be like a Brooks, Bro- Brooks Boys riot. <laughs> what was it called? The Brooks Brothers riot. Brooks Brothers riot. On a national scale. Um, but instead of Brooks Brothers, Fred Perry's. Right. Uh, so MAGA people did turn out to vote counting locations in, in Pennsylvania and in Phoenix and, and other places, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, but they never really took this initiative to disrupt anything uh, because they believed that Trump's uh, legal team was, was sorting this stuff out. They have this kind of religious faith that, uh, you know, there's this plan and Trump was going to, you know, the truth would be revealed. The storm is coming. Yeah. They don't, they, they just, you know, they're, they just, and, and they weren't ever instructed to really disrupt anything. So they just didn't take that kind of initiative. Um, and I could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like that many of them came out. Like it wasn't the tens of thousands that you see at like big Trump rallies. There's like a few hundred at each location. Well, it asked, it asked for something completely different, which is instead of being in like a coliseum or uh, out on a football field and like passively listening to and taking in information from Trump being validated in all of your resentments and your hatreds and being there with other people to like passively celebrate something it asked people to actually do something active right, and right. ask like an actual political project of people individually that they have to come out and collectively you know defend Donald Trump from the communist Democrats or whatever, yeah, yeah. which is a lot to ask right now when, you know, everyone's so inert and everything's so alienated and atomized. Yeah. It's less fun to ask them to, you know, take their own initiative and like, right. uh, start taking over for example. And, and also part of what really motivated, uh, a lot of the, the core psychos of Trump's base, like the proud boys, for example, is anti-communism. Um, and Biden's not a communist, right. like no one, Really, I mean, I know people believe that, but like it's they're dumb dumbs. What I'm saying is like if Sanders was if this was like Sanders winning the election with the same numbers, I think the base, you know, would be way more fired up. I think uh, in general, Trump would have a lot more allies in his corner. Um, Whether or not Bernie would have won or not. Now, on the flip side, there were anarchists and other revolutionary type people who attempted anti-election marches the night of the election. Uh, or actually, the, sorry, the night afterwards, hoping to harness the anxiety of a Trump coup into a uh, tangible position against both parties. That's, you know, broadly popular. Most people don't like either party. Um, and they were harshly repressed. Uh, in Portland, the National Guard was there. 
in Minneapolis, they uh, they kettled and arrested hundreds of people on a freeway. In New York, they kettled uh, a march and, and beat people up for days straight, including totally peaceful marches that were not posing any kind of threat. Um, the police just decided we're not going to have this stuff going on on the streets uh, after the election. They wanted to maintain order and prevent election chaos. They didn't want that uh, spreading, you know, and that's like a reasonable impulse. Um, unless you actually do think that Trump is going to do a fascist coup, mm. in which case you want people on the streets to fight <laughs> right. back. Right. Right. Um, or, you know, maybe you want them fighting back at the right time. But the point is, why would people stand up and fight for the democratic party and democracy and Biden, uh, when the, their police are beating them up? Right. Um, so more objectively speaking, I don't think the forces of the far right uh, and far left really want this kind of social conflicts. Um, you know, they they theoretically p- might want dictatorship or revolution, but uh, the the more popular imaginary is just civil war. And people talk about civil war. You know, obviously there are groups that have formed thinking that it's coming and preparing for it. Um, but I think the the really horrible incidents over the summer, the bloodshed in Kenosha and Portland have made a lot of people rethink like how cool that's going to be. And since uh, there's been a lot less of that, there's been way less like direct hostility between Trump supporters and leftists. Um, It's definitely happened. It's just not, it's like, there's a, there's a point where we were worried it was going to escalate to like gun, like shootouts everywhere in the country. And that hasn't happened. We talked about on the show about the potential for this, like normalization of political violence and this sort of escalating conflict on the streets. And uh, we dodged that bullet. Um, And so a a final idea I have uh, about why Trump is this kind of weak authoritarian or, you know, unable to perform this coup is that uh, basically the the concept of populism that he raised um, has has proven itself in many occasions to be very weak and uh, not really able to do what um, its you know uh, its ruling class backers want it to do or what uh, its working class or uh, middle class backers want it to do either. Populism is something that works as an opposition campaign, but once it's in power, it's unable to really change much uh, because the capitalist crisis can't just be fixed through a policy change. Yes, It's a global system that you can't just uh, amend away through certain kinds of uh, parliamentary maneuvering. Even if you're a dictator, you can't necessarily yeah. do that. The dictatorship might solve some problems. Um, Labor unrest. Yeah. Or, yeah. or a Sanders presidency. You know, could certainly solve some problems, set yeah. set the groundwork for problems to be solved, but it will not itself healthcare. solve any problems. Right. It could rationalize healthcare, right. it could rationalize various industries, but it couldn't actually overcome crisis itself. Yeah, and there's there's indications that at, uh, elements of the the ruling class prefer something like a Sanders solution, right? maybe a little bit less obviously socialist, like something more MMT oriented, where you can uh, you can do that social spending without taxing the rich that might be ideal for a lot of the a lot of the elites um whereas uh the right right populism of excluding people is is much less attractive um and so the extent that trump has maintained his popularity has been by through diverting these populist promises of bringing home manufacturing ending free trade rebuilding infrastructure with just uh blatant lies cultural grievances 
um, you know, renaming trade deals and stuff, stuff like that. And, you know, for 71 million people, that was enough. But uh, I think if Trump were this kind of right populist FDR or Bonapartist figure, um, I think he'd have a lot more support uh, and it would make the, the, the idea of him doing a coup much more popular. So, so where I'm going with this basically is that the, the concept of dictatorship and the coup has been raised. And a lot of people like it in theory, but it's not the right time. And just the fact that it is on the table is like a really scary thing. Yeah, that means something. Uh, but that's just, realistically, that is the direction we are headed. Thanks, Andy, for that uh, <laughs> vote of confidence for the future. I'm going to grab a beer. Do you want another one? Uh, I'm, I'm good for now. <clears throat> yeah, so what I want to do here is I want to take this um, this election and its context, which is four years of President Donald J. Trump, four years of the orange menace, and certainly eight, nine months of the COVID crisis, which is, of course, a triple crisis, economic, political, and ecological, I want to give this a different kind of treatment because all the time now on the news and on social media, you're hearing very sort of small bore sort of uh, electoral analyses of things like how, who voted in this state, who voted in that, you know, who are the demographics that supported this, what are the particular policies over here? I'm not saying that stuff is unimportant, but what I want to do is give this whole thing the thousand-year stare treatment, right? It's about time we get back to that sort of meta world historical analysis that uh, I think is very valuable all this time because we need to the short-termism of uh, so much of the media and uh, even other analysis. I think really leaves out um, a lot of the more important and larger structural dynamics of uh, global capitalism and our political structure. So, with all that said. This election, 2020, reminds me so much of um, Obama in 2008, beating John McCain. Um, If people remember that far back, if you were even around then, you had an absolutely disastrous uh, Bush presidency, right? George Bush had record low approval ratings. The war of Iraq, the surge had happened. And so like the violence was starting to go down, but the war was still really bad. We were certainly in Afghanistan. And then in 2008, the uh, structural contradictions of capital came. And all of a sudden now you had an epochal financial crisis, which brought the entire you know, financial system of the world to its knees. And uh, while that election was going, there were massive, massive bailouts of the capitalist class and of the banks. And of course, as the election happened to uh, tons of foreclosures and layoffs were beginning in the United States. So this was all set in 2008 at the feet of George Bush, right? It was said at that moment when the Democrats won really big in Congress and when we got our first black president that the forces of reaction that George W. Bushism had been defeated, that it was a new era. It was an era of hope and it was an era of change and that all of these crises, right? could now be uh, overcome with a new political alignment, with a new political party in power, and with a master orator named Barack Obama who would come in. There's also this sense that it was like this victory of the people, like from this emerging anti-war movement, trying to fight the Iraq war, and, uh, and following from that, and like how unpopular Bush had become after Katrina, uh, there's a sense that like the people had risen up against yeah. the right wing. And Obama's rhetoric uh, led people to that conclusion. Right, right. He was a community organizer. And really, his speeches back then were like 
know, way different than how he sounds now. He was really, up, he was up. a good populist. Like he inspired a lot of people in a genuine way. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Adolf Reed was really good about this at the time. And we all know after Obama, how much of his rhetoric um, was ultimately empty. You know, you could see it was empty at the Adolf time. Reed. What did I say? No, I'm just- <laughs> no, I mean joke. Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to do a uh, referendum on uh, Adolf Reed today. I mean, no, no, not today. We could someday, um, but yeah. So like, Obama sweeps into power on this populist m- mandate. People thought he was going to do, it, especially because this happened in a crisis, like a new, uh, new deal. You know, that was like seen really in the offing. Um, and as soon as you saw that, as soon as you saw George Bush and the Republican Party, people were literally saying that the party was dead for a generation. They weren't sure if the Republican Party was ever going to come back. All of a sudden, when Obama was elected, you know, this Iraq war terror that you saw in the news all the time starts to drop off. People start to calm down a little bit. The era of Bush is over. And what happens just that next year, months later, is that the Tea Party comes. Right, the Tea Party arises, which is this right populist backlash. So, Biden being elected like this, it, it seems as though you know it's the end of an era and it's the beginning of something new. But uh, I think people thought that in two thousand eight too, and I don't think that the system such as it exists right now has anything new in it, has anything new to propose. And I think a lot of what we saw in this election shows that that there there needs to be some way. Uh, through trial and error, through policy, through a recreation of the regime of accumulation for capital to get out of this incredibly low, uh, stagnant rate of profit. Um, But that just isn't there yet. And we're seeing this reflected in our national politics. I said back in March on the show and uh, online that the COVID crisis was a legitimacy crisis of the bourgeois state, just as Trump, for so many people, became a legitimacy crisis for the bourgeois state. How could this orange clown, how could this Cheeto become president? Our institutions must be illegitimate. You know, the actual runnings of the state must be in crisis. We no longer believe in this. Well, what having Biden, uh, presumably, because I, I think Trump's still fighting, but presumably having Biden in power would do is it wouldn't solve the contradictions that Andy talked about, but it would put this sort of patina of normalcy and legitimacy back over the presidency, the executive branch, the bourgeois state. Yeah. And the, his pitch was that he was a centrist and that he would, uh, he would be somebody who was appealing to the, the, the right and to the liberals and he would crush the left. <laughs> so, uh, so he was, he was basically running as like, um, all the hatred towards Obama. Um, we can temper that and we can temper all this Trump nonsense and I can unify. And this is a message that, um, some idiots believe, uh, mainly journalists and, uh, <laughs> and big donors. Um, but of course the, the right is always going to call, their opponents a socialist, you know, yeah. if they're, if who they like tells them that they're a socialist, they'll do it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you see, because if you read the, 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 the running dog bourgeois press and you listen to those pundits you're talking about, what so much I think of the capitalist class and the ruling class in general wanted was a blue wave, 
right? They wanted not just a, Bi- a, a decisive Biden win to put away Trump and Trumpism, but also, of course, wins in the Congress and in the state houses, because what's necessary for them, and, and this would have good knock-on effects for us, but uh, would be a rationalization of the COVID response and a massive new stimulus. They want that $2 trillion to business and two tax cuts and to the states in order to stimulate the capitalist economy. As it turns out, that wasn't possible, right? As it turns out, when you saw the results where Biden barely squeaks by and Republicans still control parts of government, certainly the judiciary, was that what the chambers of commerces of the world wanted, what the capitalists of the world wanted, which was a stimulus and a rationalized response by the Democrats, instead resulted in a divided government. And I don't think that that's like a contingent factor. I think that to the extent that the ideas of the ruling class, you know, are, are that, that the ruling class uh, creates and forms the ideas, the, the ideology of society, I think the ruling class was unable to manufacture consent for the kind of outcome that they preferred, right? This divided government is a sign that the ruling class is too divided ultimately, to decide on, on some sort of um, plan moving forward and, uh, you know, this kind of thing that would overcome this, this divisiveness, but also the contradictions. But with that said, even if the Democrat Party had managed to do this blue wave and control all the uh, levers of government, as Andy said, there's no series of policy proposals, industrial policy, trade policy, fiscal policy, monetary policy that could at this late date, even without COVID, smooth over all of the crises that exist now in the economy and the society, or more importantly, and this is the goal, is put the quote unquote economy back on a uh, trajectory of growth, right? Because we know the the rate of profit on industrial and other manufacturing and, and, and other uh, sectors was declining before the COVID crisis now, but nothing that, that uh, Biden or the, or Chuck Schumer could do could have overcome the contradictions and the social conditions that arise from COVID and that COVID is ultimately a reflection of because COVID as we've talked about, um, has, exa- has exacerbated all these tendencies already in existence. Uh, chief among them, um, this tendency towards atomization of individuals and also alienation from not just, this goes back to our society of the spectacle shit, not just from uh, their work process, but also from their lives. All of what you saw with COVID, and this is the context of the election, is that when you take away all the support mechanisms, when you take away all the sort of institutions, including work, including consumption, including play, that people have, there is absolutely no community left in 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 America and indeed in the world except for the material community of capital. People don't have any lives outside of work barely any lives, you know, out in the realm of consumption. But if you take that away from people, if they can't shop, if they can't get their nails done, all of a sudden everything starts to fall apart, not just consumption, but people's entire lives. And we're living in the midst of that contradiction, in the midst of this crisis right now. And you're seeing this in not just deaths of despair. You know, I, I unfortunately know somebody else just the other day who, um, who died because of the the psychological effects and the social effects of COVID. And I've known so many of them before, not just the deaths of despair that you're seeing right now, but also this political spec, um, spectacle right now is so much a reflection of this divided and contradictory society. So 
the idea in the media is that with Biden, uh, we are going back to normal, right? Have you heard that? Like we're, we're going back to normalcy essentially, right? You have, like you said, this figure that can unite the two parties and unite the, uh, you know, the populace of this country. Um, but the crisis does not allow for that, right? It doesn't allow for that. Um, this might seem insane, right? That all these things are happening on a, on an individual and social level that are not being reflected in the politics of this country. All of the, um, foreclosures, all of the job losses, all of the deaths of deaths of despair. It seems crazy that the media won't cover it, but how is this any different from periods before that? How is it any different from like the mass labor unrest of the 1970s? the mass layoffs of the 1980s, the mass incarceration of the 1990s, and all of the immiseration that's happened since 2001. When you look at the media response to this, it's as though those things were never happened, right? They'd never happened, and Biden wasn't even really addressing this great social crisis. And I think that that tracks because you've got basically two tracks running right now. You've got the society that works for voters, right? That people are responding to when they put their ballots in. And then you've got those large percentage of voters who are completely disconnected from any sort of political outcome whatsoever. So what I'm trying to say is ultimately is that the experience of watching this election, it seemed as though it was happening in a completely different world from the real world (laughs) that exists for so many tens of millions of people in the United States and hundreds of millions of people around the globe right now in this crisis, right? It's like, the, the Biden versus Trump election for all that, you know, is purported to be seemed as though was portrayed as though it was this sort of meaningful world historical clash between like two different ideas of how the world should run. It was the sense that we can bring legitimacy back where it was lost before, that there was actual meaning in it. And why does it seem stage managed, right? It's because... Um, because of the real material constraints that exist on any policy right now. You know, the ability of the capitalist class, as I said before, to find some sort of program, right, some sort of set of policies that could get us out of this crisis, I think is very much diminished right now. I think that the capitalist class is divided and the gap between what politics can actually provide in this country and what is necessary for some bourgeois state to do is so great that politics itself with this election has become more an aesthetic choice and a cultural signifier than an actual choice between different political strands, between different political futures, right? Never before has the gulf between the promise of America and the reality of America been so stark. And yet all of this happens in our individual lives, in our families, in our communities and towns across this country, but it's not reflected in the politics, The crisis is not reflected in the politics, at least not in a straightforward way. Um, And so in a way, it's not even just that there's two different medias for the the right wing with Fox News and AONN and Biden with, you know, MSNBC and CNN. It's almost like there's two complete different media and political environments for the United States. Uh, One between basically splitting the two economies that exist. On the one hand, you've got the voters, the individuals, the workers and others who are able to make their way, who are the you know, 25% that voted for Trump or the 25% that voted for Biden, they see a real stake in this system, right? But so many people out there have no stake, have no stake whatsoever. And so this sort of stage managed spectacle of the 
election, I think misses so much of what's actually happening in this country right now. And I think that's because we're in a period of transition. We've talked so much on this show about the 1970s, right? Where we were going from the Fordist post-war era into something new. And that something new ended up becoming neoliberalism, right? The age that we've been living in our entire lives. But in that process in the 1970s, there was all sorts of chaos, right? As profits were low and as all the old tricks weren't working any longer in order to make the economy go, as industries went belly up, as class composition violently shifted, as the culture went into crisis and a great malaise passed over the developed capitalist world. Um, We know that neoliberalism came out of the 1970s, but we have no idea what comes out of this moment, this similar, similarly transitionary moment that Trump versus Biden is not, it's, it's, it's only a, a signal towards where we're actually going because we're in this period of chaos. Is it going to be post-fascism, right? Is that right populism that Annie was talking about going to be able to rally and going to be able to create the sort of solutions for capital that are necessary in order for there to be a new regime of accumulation that's going to help to continue the profit system? Is it going to be po- post-fascism or is it going to be like a, a new morning for liberalism and democracy? Are we going to get some sort of rejuvenated Clintonism back? You know, we don't know. Uh, There'll probably be some new synthesis of these things. We can only speculate on what's coming out of our particular era, but we're definitely at the end of an epoch, the end of the epoch of neoliberalism and the birth of something new. What that looks like, we're not sure, but in the near term, what you're seeing is uh, I think I'm speculating here again, but I think right after the election, you're going to start to see COVID dropping out of the news a lot more because the COVID story, as important as it was, was always spun as look how badly Trump is responding to this crisis, right? Look how there's no uh, adequate measures, how there's no contact tracing or whatever. I think now that that media narrative is unnecessary, you know, that Biden, that the adults are back in the room, I think you're going to see the coverage of COVID change completely. And you're going to see, as you've already seen, the complete normalization of COVID deaths, right? We have 125,000 cases a day now. And we still have hundreds and hundreds of people dying a day. You're going to see the normalization of that under Biden. And you're going to see the layoffs and evictions, right, also being normalized as things go back to some sort of uh, stasis under Biden. So, again, there's a sizable minority of people in this country. Uh, they have good management and professional careers. They can go out to Prospect Park on a Saturday on a beautiful day and truly celebrate. They have podcasts. They have podcasts. But they'll be ironically celebrating. <laughs> right. Uh, th- they can go out and celebrate the end of our long national nightmare. Right. So you have this minority. While another sizable minority uh, watches the season finale of their favorite television show, right? Their favorite series with sadness and resigned anger as their you know, God Emperor is uh, canceled for this season to come back in some other guys. You're talking about how to with John Wilson? Yes, I am. Exactly. I was actually was Bob Vila. But um, so, so you have these groups, right? Um, like Andy said, like their their idea of action in this moment isn't to go out and do a coup. It isn't to go take over a, a voting booth somewhere and burn the ballots and force Trump into the presidency. Their reaction is to post on Facebook, put some wraparound sunglasses on and go and like scream about communists and social justice warriors and trans people or whatever. You have this like 
normalization, I guess I'm saying, of immiseration and destruction of society that's happening right now. We saw this uh, just last month with the wildfires, which are now completely out of the news. You know, we had these epochal destruction of California, and that's, I guess, no longer an, an important uh, news story, uh, similar to Hurricane Maria, which happened a few years ago, right, which absolutely destroyed Puerto Rico. But unlike Katrina, it was kind of set aside into the background as something that just happened, or at least for framed as like a failure of the Trump administration to deal with. It's this normalization of more and more and more chaotic and uh, uh, traumatic experiences across society. And I think that's only going to continue, unfortunately, because our politics, again, cannot confront. There's no ability for our politics as they exist today to confront the real contradictions uh, that are existing in society. So what do we do with that, I guess, is the question. What do like we... Antifada podcast hosts? What do we Antifada listeners? What do we broadly as the left do with all that? I think what you've seen here, especially in the last few days when like all of the pretensions of the progressive or liberal left to like pushing Biden in the right direction or to get some little piece of power have been batted back um, in the media and, and by politicians, the, the complete elimination of progressives and liberals from the conversation, I think shows us that we need to give up on the Democratic Party completely and forever. I hate to say it. If this is you, then I apologize to you directly. But it's frankly pathetic to see people going on and celebrating these like small little victories that exist on some state level of their particular candidate who has a really good you know policy on this, that, and the other thing, or like celebrating the squad as though they're going to like change American politics or celebrating like the small foothold that quote unquote socialism has gotten in the democratic party. It's frankly pathetic because it's so little and it's so late that it's hard to even call that a victory. And it's hard to imagine that how in the future that is going to spread into some real substantive, uh, substantive alternative. And as Matt and I said on history as a weapon, with the smashing of the Bernie Sanders project, the smashing of the Corbyn project, right? And now the complete cucking of the progressives we're seeing right now, it's clear that there can be no peaceful electoral way to mitigate this capitalist crisis, right? And I think that that means that all serious political discussion that we have should be happening within the communist milieu. I think that ultimately where the realists that we are the adults in the room, that the Republicans and the Democrats and the media and everybody do not have a handle on what is necessary right now. And I think we start, need to start taking our responsibility as communists very, very seriously. I think that the angry workers have, uh, have a good program for trying to overcome this massive gap between our theory, which I think is right, and our practice, right? Between uh, communist theory in the abstract and the actual workplace itself, we have to bridge the gap between critical theory and the shop floor, right? We need to go into working class communities, not as though we were outside of the working class, but as part of the working class ourselves. We need to be doing the kind of worker inquiries that we talked about. We need to be creating the sort of means of communication necessary to cohere and unite all these small disparate struggles that are very real that exist uh, in workplaces and communities all over the country. And eventually we have to build not like a, a subsidiary of the democratic party, not like a subsidiary of the labor party or whatever, or like some, 
pressure group in order to push them in the right direction. We have to think about building and start building autonomous organs of class power. All right, that can connect different struggles together across cities, across countries, and across the globe. What I'm saying is it's time for us to get the thousand-yard stare, right? We need to start concentrating on an actual transition, a rupture out of capitalism. Because underneath all this election shit, everything that's happening, the working class is in motion, the contradictions are heightening, and our mode of production is faltering under its own weight. So for the good of humanity... Capitalism as a mode of production needs to be overcome. I think that the age of capital is ending one way or the other. So don't listen to the libs, all right? Don't listen to the, uh, the, the pepes. Don't listen to the populists of either side, right? The communists now in this moment of crisis are the adults in the room, and we need to start acting like it. Yeah, that was really great. I agreed with most of what you said. I, I have a little bit more sympathy with people who celebrate uh, socialists getting elected. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not so enthusiastic about it myself. I'm not. But. I'm not trying to yuck anybody's yum, but I, I think <laughs> the, the 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 gap between the like the scope of what needs to be done and what's actually happening. Oh, of course. You know, that, that's all. It yeah, is. let people enjoy things. Yeah. Um, I just want to cap that off by making uh, a point. Uh, also, you know, inspired by the three way fight blog this time an essay by matthew lyons um who wrote in september about the prospects of a trump coup that uh th- it would be framed as a conflict between fascism and democracy and this was essentially the biden campaign strategy that you know we need to put everything aside and you know just uh, prevent this this threat to democracy a popular and front against fascism exactly a popular front Liberals and the left together historically has not always worked out so well, but this is this is not a fascism versus democracy thing. Despite Trump embracing the fascistic demands of his movement at time, or you know, leaning into those themes, he doesn't have the intellect or the will to transform society in the way the historical fascists did. He never really mobilized. Uh, the militants in his base, the way that they would need to for them to take a a revolutionary stance right now. And uh, on the other side of it, neither the Republicans or the Democrats actually care about democracy. They don't want free and fair elections. They exist to maintain their own power and and the power power of the people they represent, primarily the ruling class. They uh, exist to keep the political possibilities confined to this structure of what is considered right versus left, and they uh, will attack what exists outside of it. So unsurprisingly, the failures of the Democrats to have won by a larger margin or taken the Senate has been blamed on various kinds of outsiders. You know, yeah. there's uh, saying that, uh, oh, it's, it's black men this time, or Latino men, or, or, uh, or something like that. But of course, their main offensive is against the left of their own party, AOC, or activists who have uh, criticized the police stridently or even called for Medicare for all. No matter how popular these things are, this is what gets the blame. So this, this indicates that this is an, uh, an institution, the Democratic Party, that is not interested in thinking about real solutions. They're interested in actually uh, shutting out and demonizing those uh, forces. That's why it should be no surprise to anyone that when there is a real coup, nobody's going to come to defend the Democratic Party. And ultimately, if we get too obsessed with these questions of 
why didn't the Democratic Party win? You know, how could we make it win better next time? How do we, you know, uh, build the working class so they vote for Democrats or, or something like that? Or, sorry to add one more, but there's been talk recently about, I think Vivek Chibber said this, that because the Democrats have abandoned the working class, that the Republicans are now the sphere that you need to fight with, that there needs to be a hostile takeover of the Republicans. But it's, it's forgivable that people say stupid things like this, and people get so obsessed with, like, this, this small exit polling data we have and wondering, you know, what it is that the right, how the, how the right's appealing to people, maybe what, what it is about right populism that's so attractive, what demographics is it working for, um, you know, what the, what the social scans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this stuff is just indication of how elections make us really stupid. I'm not saying you're stupid to think and talk no. about elections. Obviously, they are important in a lot of ways. And you're not stupid to celebrate the small victories that can Thank happen you. on the local Thank level. Thank you. Uh, but... This whole system itself is designed to make us stupid, designed to make us turn away from politics, make us think that politics exists in these intrigues and, uh, and narrow choices, uh, and that's just not the case. Politics exists between us, between the people that we know, the people that we live with, the people that we work with. That's where politics actually happens. And, uh, <laughs> and and if neither the Democrats nor the Republicans can even, not that they don't, but can even propose any way out of this crisis, then unfortunately it's contingent upon other people and it's ultimately contingent upon us. So like we have to act with the, serious, the seriousness of this moment and ditch the kind of unserious sort of entryism uh, of, of the Democratic Party or the Republicans for that matter because yeah it, they, these are ruling class institutions they're anti-communist institutions and we need to basically create our own yeah and that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight against the right and against Trump and his coup attempts but we cannot fight to protect liberal democracy dead ass dead ass